Hello and welcome to Safe and Sound, a podcast by the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland exploring the world of human factors in healthcare and patient safety. Each episode we will try to untangle different aspects of this complicated web of human factors in healthcare through interviews with some extraordinary guests and faculty in Ireland and across the world. My name is Fardad O'Kelly, Consultant Urologist and Senior Lecturer in Surgical Affairs here in the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. And today I have the privilege of kicking off this podcast series with Professor Eva Doherty, who is a clinical psychologist and the Director of Human Factors and Patient Safety here in the RCSI. Eva, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you. So we'll, we'll be kicking off every podcast with a relatively subjective question but as the inaugural interviewee you have the privilege of going first so what does human factors mean to you okay well we take a very broad definition of human factors um in that it is everything to do with how people interact with the environment with the equipment within a society within a country you know there's just so many moving parts there that can either go right or alternatively can go wrong. And in fact, here in the college, we do take a a slightly original or innovative viewpoint as well in that we really emphasize the importance of communication, which a lot of other institutions may not so much. They might emphasize more the kind of more the equipment side of things that very much comes from the airline industry or um, or or kind of the more procedure-based type of factors that are part of human factors. But we, for us, and it's probably my bias, uh, communication is massive. Communication between health professionals and their patients and families and communicating with each other. That's huge. And every time something goes wrong, 70% of the time, there's going to be a communication issue. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a burgeoning uh, issue now these days. But I, I suppose, tell me... Maybe we'll get a little bit of background about yourself. So t- I mean, sure. Tell me about your background and your training and how did you become involved with the university? So uh, that goes way back to the mid 80s. And I was a, an early career clinical psychologist looking for a job. And I ended up with three jobs because in those days it was actually, would you believe it, they're crying out for clinical psychologists now here uh, in Ireland. But in those days, it was very hard to get a job. So I ended up with three jobs and one of them was a part time two sessions a week job here in the college teaching behavioral science to medical students. And uh, that was two sessions a week. And I also got a job in the rheumatology department in Vincent's Hospital. Uh, That proved to be really valuable experience going forward because it meant that, you know, I had some face validity with the medical students. I'd worked in a hospital. I know what goes on. and then my other job as well was um, in adult mental health and adolescent mental health um, in a hospital um, in Fairview. So I ended up with these three jobs. And over time, I suppose the, the one, the education one was the one that sort of grabbed my focus and attention. And I got nice opportunities along the way. And so I've ended up here now full time. I remember you well lecturing me as a first year <laughs> medical student over 20 years ago now at this stage. But tell me a little bit about how you established the postgraduate human factors program in the RCS. I mean, how did that come about? What was your motivation for doing it? And, and how do you think it's changed over the years? Okay, now that was the vision of 
Oscar Trainer. So Oscar Trainer is a hepatobiliary retired now surgeon. Um, and it was really his baby. He he realized and he really set up um, not only the human factors training program, but also the surgical skills training program, because people might not realize, but the model, you know, up to now, if you're like, or up to then, I should say, was an apprentice model. So, you know, young surgeons would get their position. They'd be in the hospitals. They would be learning at the hands of the master, but they wouldn't be coming into a, an educational institution to get additional training. And it was Oscar who really saw the potential, you know, there. And so he he established the surgical skills training first and then not happy with that because he's an incredibly innovative person. He went on to um, set up the human factors program. And that was in recognition of the fact that, you know, there's, there's an awful lot of wisdom that, you know, doctors acquire over years and years and years of training. But why not try and give them that you know, from the very beginning. Why is it people have to learn by their mistakes, you know? And he realized there's so much that can go wrong in this whole, what they often call the non-technical skill area as well. So everything to do with your leadership skills, your communication skills, your team working, um, your, you know, your your kind of your, your, your wisdom, your cop on, if you like, you might call it. And um, that was really his vision. And he he set it up and then funny enough i was um just about to embark on my own um doctorate uh, program and i had been interested in emotional intelligence for a long time and i wanted to look at emotional intelligence in uh doctors so i approached oscar didn't know him at all and even though he's here in the college but as you know surgical training in the medical school you know, they're two sort of divisions, if you like, of what goes on. And uh, he got, got back to me straight away and, and he said, I can't believe there's somebody here in RCSI that knows about emotional intelligence and I didn't know. So we got talking and he asked me to do a workshop for the trainees. And uh, then um, they asked me to move. I was in the graduate medical school at that point and they asked me would I consider moving and come and get involved in the human factors. So... I worked very closely with um, Dara O'Keefe, who is a surgeon herself, plastic surgeon, has gone full time into surgical education. And she had got involved in the program at that point as well. And we really sat down and we went we went through every single session that we had in place at that point, And we pretty well turned it all on its head and changed it uh, to its current format. Um, Yes, yeah, so that, that was, that's kind of the the origins of it all. So if I'm hearing you right, then it sounds as if this was a proactive approach to postgraduate surgical training and not a reactive um, initiative because of something that was going on in hospitals at the time. Well, it was probably a matter of both because I would imagine that Oscar was basing his... Um, you know, his his interest on on setting up a human factors program, perhaps on his own experience, what he saw himself going on in the hospitals, knowing that, you know, there has to be another way. You know, why do we why do we not train people in these um, principles and allow them, you know, fall over the rocks, make mistakes like that's that's not right. <laughs> and did you I mean, initially was this. Was this kind of consultant 
on faculty led? Was it peer to peer? I mean, how, how did it how did it first arise? I mean, when you were given the classes? Yeah, well, we have this model which we continue to this day, where we will always have a behavior specialist, so a psychologist, somebody who knows about what makes human beings tick, and you know, and explain being able to explain behaviors and thoughts and emotions. Um, so we'll have that and then that we'll always couple that with one or even more um, usually quite senior people, always, you know, a consultant clinician because our program has become interdisciplinary now. We will have quite a range. So we could have a surgeon, emergency medicine consultant, radiologist, uh, ophthalmologist, etc. Um, will always be there during the training sessions. And we kind of started that off in the very beginning and we've kept to that. And what was happening in that sphere at the time around the country or in, in the UK? I mean, was this was this a relatively innovative model to your to your recollection? Well, it still is. Um, there is no, to our knowledge, um, there is no other uh, surgical training college um, that has this mandatory human factors training. There, in other jurisdictions, there will be organizations that will, so in the US, it'll be, you know, the likes of the Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland, Kaiser Permanente, mm-hmm. in Canada as well, I'm sure, in Australia, in the UK, um, and even in, in countries in Europe. There will be institutions that will set up these kinds of training courses for doctors but they won't be part of a an established curriculum like we've got established outcome competencies now we're able to match we've matched that to our curriculum we're pretty happy we don't have any gaps or anything that we don't that we don't cover um and ours is an eight-year program and we assess it for the first two years and those marks are very high stakes in terms of the doctor progressing on so there's no other uh, program like that in the world. And did you have simulation embedded into this from the start or is this something that kind of came a little bit later? Now that came a bit later mm-hmm. and that's interesting. So that all started um, because our our actual current now managing director, Karen Ryan, he was in charge of research at the time. He managed to acquire grants from the HSE, would you believe, um, to see about setting up a um, combined program between the College of Anesis and the College of Surgeons using high fidelity simulation to train some of these principles. So I was a complete newbie to high fidelity simulation. I knew absolutely nothing. Um, I remember looking on the internet at the time, this would have been um, in the 2000s, I think, um, and finding, thank goodness, um, from our US friends a a website that actually had cases with everything described everything that you would need the equipment etc etc um very very meticulously planned and i kind of grabbed those and i went to my colleagues in the college of anesis and i said oh do you think these might work so um that was great because there was a lot of concern about the amount of time it was going to take like it's hugely resource intense to plan these cases that you would use in a high fidelity simulation environment. And you have to be so careful that there's no loopholes, there's nothing that can go wrong. Um, you know, if people aren't familiar with that, high fidelity simulation literally means setting up a mock operating theater or a mock emergency department or a hospital ward. The patient, in inverted commas, is usually, but it doesn't have to be, a mannequin 
that is uh, connected to a computer, then we can make that mannequin, you know, have breathing problems or, um, you know, any anything you can think of. Almost we can we can make that go wrong, um, and the team have to work together, communicate together, uh, to to sort out the problem. And and we can you know throw in all kinds of curveballs, if you like, um, to teach the principles that we want. And the thing is, it has to be matched to educational objectives. Like you don't just do things just for the fun of it. You have to figure out, okay, what are our actual educational objectives for this day and how are we going to meet those? And we will, we've progressed on now since then, because luckily enough, Dara O'Keefe, who I referred to before, she went to um, the States for about five years and was associate director of a sim center there and acquired huge amount of experience and exposure in boston yeah and so she came back thankfully um and brought a whole other set of uh, ideas and everything that we've been able to apply so i would say at least 50 percent of what we do now is in the high fidelity sim um environment now of course facilitated by the fact that we have a state-of-the-art sim center here in the college which we acquired about six years ago now i'd say that has been a game changer um it's super just putting my business hat on here i mean it's not cheap doing this stuff i mean it's quite expensive having these programs and running them how how did you get buy-in from senior management well um i mean the lucky thing was was that the hsc actually were paying for the first initiative as the health services section Exactly. So that's the health service executive here in Ireland. And, um, you know, people give out about them, but, you know, they do do good things. And this was a, a good thing that they did. And I still often tell the trainees, you know, believe it or not, the HSE got us started down this road. Um, so um, so when the money ran out, then it was really a matter of going to the our leaders, our managers in our department at the time and saying, look, this is working really well trainees love it what do you want to do do you want to take it on and continue with it or are we just going to let it go and they went no let's keep it going and th- that's what happened and we were lucky at the time that the college of anesis had their own mock operating theater um so we used to do all the teaching down there and then when we got our own one now we share it out so it's 50 50 half it'll be down there half it'll be up here with us so, Eva, in, in addition to establishing the, you know, the postgraduate training program for surgeons in, in human factors and simulation, which obviously you've mentioned Oscar Trainer and Darrow Keefe, who are both uh, going to be interviewees on the podcast at a later at a right. later stage. I mean, this this expanded out not just surgery, but obviously, you know, collaborations with anesthesiology, emergency medicine came on board, ophthalmology, and there's a few other um, faculties uh, coming on board now. Um, but in addition to all that, somehow, you know, you also found time to set up a thriving uh, master's program in human factors and patient safety. Um, how did that come about? And, what, and, you know, why did you feel there was a need for that as well as what, what we were doing on the ground here? OK, so that's a good one, because that so that goes back to around 2009, pretty well when I kind of started um the thing I noticed, and it had that has changed over time because now we have this assessment for the first two years. So, you know, we get buy-in from the trainees because of that. And also that kind of is what makes it worth it. And, you know, there's a, there's a phrase in education that assessment drives learning. And it really, you know, once we got that those assessments, 
in place that really made a difference, I, I could see, to the trainees. Um, and um, the listeners might be interested to know, like these these assessments, they're not written assessments. They are um, conversations that we set up, simulated conversations that might be with patients, with families, with colleagues. And we observe them and we mark them along, you know, established marking schedules. Um, so we're very much, you know, we're not um assessing what maybe they might think in their minds is good to do we're actually assessing can they actually perform you know do they have the skills but anyway but for the more senior years um it began to dawn on me you know there's not a lot really in it for the senior trainees you know they have to come along to these days but what do what's in it for them you know i mean how many of us who of us does anything just for the sake of it, if you like. I mean, yes, to to an extent, but really, you know, we undertake a postgraduate um, trainee program because there's something in it for us. Um, so I thought, right, I'm going to see, can I uh, figure out a postgraduate academic program that trainees could sign up for if they want it, that their training days would feed into, it would be part of it, but that they would um, also take on the science side of what we were teaching because we don't teach the sort of the literature and the science side of it because well we wouldn't have the time for one thing but for the other thing it's just be a bit heavy you know so we're very practical we're very hands-on in the way we do our training usually it doesn't promote as much interaction in these classes either if it's all didactic yeah, yeah absolutely and and let's face it you know trainees are so incredibly busy then they don't have time for reading up and lots of stuff although we do have an online um, website with everything on it that accompanies all the all the topics that we teach. So if the trainees are interested, they can go and read the, the best papers um, that go along with each each topic. So anyway, so I sat down and as I say, Oscar, who, you know, always is encouraging, he said, absolutely, Eva, go for that. So I uh, put together an application for accreditation with NUI um, for the postgraduate um, diploma leading to a master's and um, got it and got it going. And um, as time went on, um, it became apparent that actually we really had a little golden nugget here and we could develop it. And so we decided to make it interprofessional. So we expanded it out the first couple of years were only the doctors, but now uh, we have anybody from any health profession can per, can sign up for this. Um, so, you know, we have about 50 percent of our um, scholars are from the nursing profession. We get um, sometimes we have people from who are pharmacists, radiographers um, geriatricians, obstetricians. Uh, in addition to surgeons, anaesthetists and emergency medicine doctors um, as well. So um, it, the, whole, the program really has taken off. Now, the topics are very similar to the ones that we would that we still continue to teach to the trainees. Mm -hmm. But um, and that would I mean, I picked those because I knew they worked. I knew that they were of value. Um, again, there's a very strong emphasis on communication, on professionalism. Um, on on non-technical skills and on personal effectiveness. So there's a lot of psychology, if you like, and human behavior in there. 
um, in addition to the more traditional topics like um, quality improvement, human factors, um, leadership in QI, um, etc. So, um, so yeah, the program is taken off and yeah we, we continue to get more and more and more people signing up for it every year so it's yeah it's become a little monster it's it's become a, a success in itself so it's great something online i mean it's now a truly global program it's not even just an irish thing we've been we, we've you know and i've the i've the uh the privilege of teaching on it as well and you know it, it, there's literally candidates from all around the world on this now i know it's hilarious and there you go that's like one good thing from the pandemic because we had to go online when that happened and again we quickly realized you know what this is working um it's actually easier to get a sense of community online than you think you think it's not but in fact when you're there on the day you know you can make it work um and and because we have we have what are, I suppose, originally coming from the MBA type model, master's in business administration type model, where we have group projects. Mm-hmm. So that means you'll have people from all different professions, five or six of them who are together. They're given a topic that's not easy to carve out into separate sections. So they really have to sit down and kind of go, how are we going to answer this? Yeah. Um, and it's a problem solving project. And they have to come up with a presentation and we video it. Um, and then they send in their videos and they are fascinating. They really, really are. They're amazing. Um, I'm external examiner for a, um, a similar project, an, a similar program, an MBA program in the um, University of East Anglia. And they use these group projects, you know, all through their programs. So I see it working through that as well. But uh, it's a great way of getting people together, even though they're online. And that's the way I think people have a real sense of community um, within the program. So they're not, even though we could have people from Singapore, Australia, South Africa, you know, it's, it's amazing. And they're sitting up till two or three o'clock in the morning um, because we have the program on during the day. But it doesn't bother them. You know, they're so... They're so into it and they're so committed. Yeah, and I remember the group projects well from my own from my own studies in 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 Smurfit. And one of the things I always really enjoyed was was the fact that you had just so many different backgrounds and so many ways of of thinking that you know you didn't have this kind of group thing that you have with just one specific cohort. So it's 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 really it's 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 really thrived from that yeah, perspective. But you mentioned community, um, and you know soon after soon after the um the master's program uh, became fully established or the the professional diploma in the master's program became fully established. You then set up a Human Factors Academy. Tell me about that. Yeah, I don't know. That just kind of came out of the blue. I think I had been sort of um, nurturing the idea. I certainly, I, one thing I know that did kind of get me thinking was I remember, um, again, uh, my colleague Dara O'Keefe, she has a, completed a master's in education uh, from Chicago and they have an annual conference and they have hundreds of people going to that and I remember thinking wow that's amazing wouldn't it be amazing if we could have something like that and we could kind of get together a community of practice in the world of you know interested people who can come together um you know we'll at the moment we we're well we run an annual um conference which we're streaming this time it's on at the end of September people can check that out if they're interested 
And we always get like really um, interesting people who are, you know, trailblazers in their own right. Um, this year, for example, we have Chris Turner um, and uh, he's an amazing trailblazer from the point of view of civility in healthcare. Uh, and then we have Stephen Yule, who is an amazing speaker and has very much specialised in non-technical skills in surgery. He's our current external examiner as well. Um, but but we every year we have, you know, really, really interesting trailblazers like that. So that's a big activity that we have going. And then this podcast series has come out of the, um, the academy as well. Um, and I have to say, I love the name that we're going for, which is Safe and Sound. <laughs> I suppose in addition to, Janie, in, in addition to all your academic endeavors in terms of getting programs set up and established and, you know, doing so much for for postgraduate studies, I mean, you've also been very active in terms of research and, you know, you've done work on burnout, resilience, emotional intelligence. You're doing a lot these days on second victim effects. Uh, and you uh, recently, was it last year, you became a fellow of the International Association of Communication and Healthcare, uh, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. But... What do you feel feel are the largest, I suppose, non technical or human factor issues affecting trainees now in twenty twenty three? I'm afraid I'm going to say it's their well being. You know, it. I think, you know, I think people outside of of healthcare really don't realize how tough it is to be a doctor. Like how tough it is to be a junior doctor. How tough it is to be a consultant like it's a hard life I mean it's incredibly rewarding I was talking to a, a trainee a couple of weeks ago and she said you know it's the best job in the world you know it is like there's no doubt about it it's incredibly rewarding but boy is it tough the hours are long you know I don't know they they're they're not I think I think attitudes towards Doctors has changed maybe, certainly in our society, in this side of the world over the years. We're not maybe as supportive of them or we don't look up to them perhaps as we did, as we did. Um, and I just think stress and, and burnout is just, they're such crucial, crucial um, obstacles, if you like, for, for them at the moment in so many ways. And we're not supporting them. Um, I'm chair of a well-being committee, which is part of the forum of postgraduate training bodies. And we've just come up with a set of principles, which is going to go to the minister. And it's like, you know, it's basic things like we're asking for an 11 hour break between shifts. I mean, what other occupation, you know, does not get that as a standard expectation? You know, this is what we're asking for. We're asking for lockers. You know, they don't have anywhere to put their their bags. You know, these are like basic things that we don't give junior doctors. You know, I really it's 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 terrible. So if you're talking about things like stress, well-being, burnout, do you think that's new or do you think that, you know, if you look back 15 years ago to when you were still heavily involved with the stuff, I mean, has that is it changed at all or is it the same issue back then as well? Or, you know, is it just being highlighted more now or or what's is there any difference at all? I think things were very tough for doctors always. You know, I mean, the very fact that in the US they're called residents is because they lived in the hospitals. Like they never went out of the hospital. And that is what they did. And I think life was tough for doctors always. There's no doubt about that. And you could, are, and probably some of our consultants would say that their times were tougher. And I'm sure that's true. 
But I think, you know, society is changing, expectations are changing and doctors are now looking for what is right, you know, whereas before they put up with what, what wasn't right. And, you know, they have expectations. They want another life. They want they want a good lifestyle. They want to be able to have a family life. You know, um, they want to be involved in their children's um, growing up. How many, you know, consultants will now say, and we actually have a paper on this, five things I wish I, I had known when I became a consultant. And when, when you read that paper, as myself and Peter Gillen uh, and others conducted that research, the consultants now say they wish they had taken their their lifestyle, you know, and prioritized those uh, that uh, more. They wish they had taken more time with their children, you know. And I think our current trainee doctors they want to be able, they want both, and they have a right to both. Um, and we're not supporting that. We're not supporting them, you know, to have a family life and to have a healthy lifestyle, and to have time to cook decent food you know so many of them end up buying junk food because they're exhausted and they haven't had time to go to the supermarket you know and yeah so and part of me is just wondering then i mean is this what was maybe going through oscar trainer's mind all those years ago well i yeah funny now you'd have to ask him that but i i think i i more think that he that it was more to do with you know, skilling people up in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, he was very, very concerned about uh, stress and managing stress. And, and we, you know, place a huge importance on that. And we have a whole day on managing stress. Um, and we have, you know, we do a very powerful session during that day where um, consultants come and speak about their um, their really tough experiences. And um, the trainees will say, I have never heard a consultant be so transparent and be so open and so genuine and talk about what they found tough. Because yeah, I think some consultants often feel the pressure that they have to be sort of, you know, the head honcho and, and that they can't show any vulnerability or, or anything like that. And so that's a really powerful session. Um, but yes, yeah, so stress and well-being was definitely a major concern of his, um, as well as what goes on in the workplace in terms of communicating with each other and leadership and all of that. Just rolling the clock forward, then. I mean, if you could, if you could gaze into your crystal ball, I mean, how do you think that human factors training is going to evolve over the next decade? I mean, is it going to be more simulation based? I mean, are we going to? Is it going to expand out more? I mean, what do you what do you predict will happen? Well, I mean, we never change our program or we never are sorry, we never stop changing, I should say. Like that's one of our problems. You know, we get a curriculum document written and then the following year it's all it's different. <laughs> so we're always we're always evolving it. We're always adding. We're always chipping away. We're always making it better. Um, so I would anticipate that those improvements will continue. Um, I think the one on a kind of bigger scale, what I would love to see is I know the our health services executive here are looking into trying to integrate human factors into um, the healthcare environments. Um, and that's a project that's ongoing at the moment. So I want to see that happening because I think there'd be a feedback loop down into the training program that we run. Because the problem is, is, OK, our training programs are fantastic, but every, I'm not very acutely aware that you know, the trainees are going away from the training and they're going back into setups that are not functioning, you know, in the way that they could. 
And so it, it's very hard for the trainees to put their learning into practice when there's so many obstacles out there. So I'd be really hopeful that, that the work environment would become so more supportive. Um, and also then on a more on a more global basis, like you can definitely see these courses are being introduced, you know, um, every, lots of different jurisdictions. Um, so the the awareness is growing and I, and I hope to see that continuing. Like even here in Ireland now, we are, you know, nearly nearly the only country. Austria has a program that's similar that where we have a national communication skills uh, training program for healthcare professionals. And that, again, has been uh, funded by our health services executive HSE and that's a brilliant brilliant innovation and that's an example of what I would like to see happening all over the world because communication is where it's at. I wonder with the pace of technology we'll be looking at things like virtual reality and augmented reality as part of our training programs here as well but oh yeah um, I, I suppose just coming on to the last question now and, and thank you so much for your time today you've been brilliant this is a tough one so this is my warning shot to you here. <laughs> nice. If you could change one thing about your professional career, and if you could give one piece of advice to trainee physicians and surgeons, what would that be? Yeah, it is a hard one because I am, I will say I'm quite satisfied, you know, with the way my career has gone because I have been allowed a lot of freedom and autonomy to introduce the innovations Um that we have and I've been delighted with that and I have to say I thank my um, managers and leaders and everybody in the department for always being supportive and pretty well never really you know saying no and um, so that's always been great I suppose one little bit of advice I would give an aspiring you know early career psychologist is get your PhD done early I started mine um, only 13, 14 years ago. But then again, I couldn't have done it earlier because, you know, I had a young family, which I was rearing at the same time. I've got four children. So um, along with my husband, I have to say, um, I'm not a I'm not a single parent, thankfully. But um, but yeah, so it was pretty impossible. So I did it when I could, but it would have been easier for me if I'd been able to do it earlier. I suppose my advice to trainees and all doctors everywhere in the world is be kind to each other. You know, um, incivility in the workplace is such a huge issue and it gets in the way of so much and it just makes everybody's day to day experience so trying and so difficult. And no matter how, you know, up against it, we might feel Let's just be kind to each other because everybody is doing their best at the end of the day, you know. And if people are coming across as difficult, it's because they're under pressure. They've lost their self-awareness. You know, they've gone into survival mode. Um, but let's try and be kind. And I just think that would make such a massive difference. Thank you so much for your time. I know we could probably speak for hours on this topic and, and actually you know what we'll, we'll definitely have you back on the podcast again so uh professor Ivadari, thank you very much for coming on today thanks a lot Fargo. enjoyed it thank you for listening to the show as always we need to thank our guests for their generous time as well as our marketing production and technical support team if you enjoyed the episode don't forget to subscribe to the podcast or leave a review and follow us on social media 
We look forward to seeing you on the next episode. And as ever, stay safe and sound.